0: Eliphaz. Now here I will begin to depart just a little bit from Ash's book outline. So this is the supplemental reading we've been doing, The Trusting God in the Darkness. And because uh, his book is this thick, and Job is about that thick, he makes uh some some cuts and groups some things together, and he groups this first round of speeches together, which is a great way to do it. That is a great way to look at. We have these cycles of speeches, and so he takes the whole first cycle together—the speech from each friend and the friend's and Joke's response to the friend—which is an excellent way to do it. But not what I want to do with this first round. I want to look at the individual speech and interaction in at least this first round. So we're gonna we're gonna pause and look at just the first interaction with Eliphaz. Um, there's three rounds of speeches. I said that's now from chapter four, where we are, all the way through chapter 27. And that's just going to be back and forth between Job and his three friends. So, Eliphaz will give his first speech in chapter four and five, and Job will respond in seven, and then Bildad, eight, nine, and ten, and then Zophar, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Um, we have time in this class, it's what I like about Sunday school, to stretch out a little bit, <laughs> uh, whereas in sermons, I'm trying not to be in a book of the Bible for the next six years. I honor the ministers who did it, but slightly more than that, I honor the congregations who could endure six years of preaching in the same book. Uh, so we actually wrap up John today, which is exactly, I think, 52 sermons in the book of John And then uh, after a couple weeks, we'll we'll start Isaiah. But in Sunday school, we can stretch things out a little bit. I don't feel the need to cover every chapter and verse. And so the ones we do cover, I feel like we can really dig into, which is what I want to try to do here. Uh, And I want us to get a sense of Job's experience. Job's experience was not that he read a five-page summary of his three friends' thoughts and then processed it as an organized whole. Job's experience is that he's sitting on a pile of trash, scraping wounds off of his body with broken pottery, listening to these fools blather on for chapter after chapter after chapter. And I think we do well to experience that a little bit with him and to sort of hear the cumulative effect of that. But Eliphaz goes first, and probably because he's the oldest, that's how these things would have worked, so we would expect to start with this pinnacle of wisdom and experience. And, uh, you know, just a heads up, I assume we've all read Job before, or at least the cliff notes of it, and we know that these aren't going to go well. The, the friend's goal of comforting Job is not accomplished. It is not successful. And as we start Eliphaz's first speech, one of the humorous things, I mean not to Job, but one of the humorous things to keep in the back of your mind is this is the best friend speech we're going to read in the whole book. This is the most compassion Job is going to get from any of these three friends. It's all downhill from here and that has always just struck me as a little bit of funny. This is the best one and that's not saying very much. The friends don't care very much about Job's feelings and for those of us who are wired or justify our behavior on wiring of not caring much about other people's feelings, you hear that and you're like, well, yeah, but you know, truth is what matters. And his friends, uh, his, did his friends speak truth? And I think this is going to be such a great example of his friends speak a lot of truth. Their theological bullet points are quite true. Their application of them is completely wrong. Uh, they're wrong about the, the circumstances. And maybe even if they were still going to be wrong about the circumstances, this wouldn't come off as badly as it does if they had the slightest ounce of compassion toward Job's experience of this pain and of this trauma. Uh, but they have not, And so it's a double win because feelings matter. That's what we've talked about for the last several weeks, that if you're going to comfort someone, their feelings matter. And you getting into their world enough Not to feel the pain as they feel it, but to understand what they feel. You're trying to move them from where they are to a better place. And you cannot move them if you don't know where they are. And so we begin there. Um, That doesn't mean that their feelings are deferred to. Because this would hurt your feelings if I said it, I'm not going to say it. That doesn't mean that. It means their feelings are taken into account. Mm -hmm. And what you'll see with some of the callous things that Eliphaz says He's not even taking Job's feelings into account at all. He's not even making an effort to be compassionate with some of these specifics. And then second, I said it was a double whammy. First was the feelings have to be cared about. And the second is truth. When when truth is not related to the situation at hand, it's not very comforting. Something can be true and irrelevant. And what these speeches are going to major in is irrelevant Truth and the person spouting irrelevant truth wants credit for speaking truth. And if Job reacts really poorly to his friend's speeches, which he will, then his friends will get defensive and say, We're just giving you the truth. You don't like the truth. You just, it's a hard truth.
1: You needed to
0: hear, right? But that's not the point. The point is, it's an irrelevant truth. It has little to nothing to do with Job's situation or with what he needs. From here. And, and what that what that says or what that reveals to me is that you aren't listening. When the truth you offer someone is not a hard truth, but an irrelevant truth. You aren't listening. You didn't do the work to figure out where they are and what's happening here. Or you did that thing many of us do, where we go into a situation already pretending we understand it and we have the answer before we ask any questions, before we get any details. It never occurs to us that we might get to a point in this interaction where the most truthful thing we could say is, I don't know. Some of us go into comforting and the phrase, I don't know, is completely gone from our vocabulary. We act as though it could not possibly be said. And there are certainly occasions where one of the most comforting things you can say to somebody is, to a specific question, is, I don't know. There are lots of things I do know that can help and bring me comfort. But this thing you're looking for, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, so his friends either aren't listening or don't have anything valuable to say, or, or both. And so we're gonna, we're gonna deal with a lot of challenge here. So let's start with Eliphaz. Uh, let's summarize his speech first and we'll break it up into parts and we'll look at some different things that are happening. Who's got uh, four, one through seven? Yeah.
1: Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made him firm the feeble knees. You have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember who that was. Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off?
0: Good work. We're good readers, right? Uh, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you have to chuckle, right, when he says, who can keep from speaking? Mm-hmm. This is the friend who sat in silence for seven days until Job unloads in Job chapter 3, this visceral expression of the heart. He says, who's seen you in this condition could remain silent for seven days like me and the other two dumb skulls just did. And it's, it's absolute madness. Now, we give Eliphaz credit. As being the most compassionate friend, right? Because at least there at the beginning, he seems to like Job, and he seems to understand his character. He has good stuff to say about Job. You've done some good things. You're a good man. He's, you know, God has said he's a good man. The narrator said he's a good man. Now we got Eliphaz saying, "Yeah, that, that's been your past." But Eliphaz's approach is going to be dictated by his theology surprise there. We do what we believe. The easiest way I can figure out what somebody believes is not what they say. It's what they do. We do what we believe. So Eliphaz is going to do what he believes and he tells you what he believes there in verse 7. Karen, would you read verse 7 again? Here
1: it goes. I remember. do the most innocent ever perish? Or where were the upright cut off?
0: So that's his... Baseline theology that he's bringing into this situation. Because Job is suffering, he is not as innocent as he claims. That's just not how the world works. The innocent are not cut off, they do not perish. That's not how God's world works, Job. So, because you are suffering, there's something else going on here. And nowhere in this entire speech, does Eliphaz consider for a moment that he could be wrong? The idea never even occurs to him that he could be wrong in his analysis of this situation. And he gives, in the next part of this speech, two reasons why that's the case. We see why it never crosses his mind that he could be wrong. Who's got 12
1: through 17? Oh, okay. Um now a word was brought to me stealthily, Loud, please. and my ear received the whisper of it.
0: Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which, I made, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided
1: past my face. A, uh, it stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice, Can mortal man, man be in a right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? So two issues here.
0: First is this private revelation from God. Verse 17. God told him. God came to him and gave him this secret knowledge. And then the sort of proof that the things God tells Eliphaz are true are that, look at verse 17. Isn't that true? Yeah, I mean, in fact, it's so true, it's rather obvious you shouldn't need secret revelation from God to know that God is righteous and we are not. But there's a real problem here, just even with this situation, which is that Job never made that claim. Eliphaz says that God revealed to him in this private vision that no man is more righteous than God. What's the relevance? Did Job ever claim that he was more righteous than God? No. Uh, Eliphaz acts as though Job is whining about a little bit of discipline for his personal sin. That's not what's happening here. On several levels, the first of which that should be obvious to Eliphaz is this is not a little bit of discipline. Even if this were discipline against Job's sin, which is a possibility, Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're, you're a pretty good dude. You do that, But do you know how God is with his children? He corrects them. You know, you're saying that you're uncorrectable, which means that you're more righteous than God. That's not what Job's saying at all. Job is looking at the amount of destruction in his life, and saying, this, isn't, this is not proportional with anything that I need to be corrected of. And he's right. According to Eliphaz's own argument, there would have to be some really significant major thing going on in Job's life for this to be the proportional correction. And that's the charge that Job is resisting. Not that he's more righteous with God than God. Not that he's sinless. Not that God doesn't discipline his children. All the stuff Eliphaz is arguing is not what Job is talking about. What Job is talking about is this. I didn't do anything to deserve this specifically. And Eliphaz won't hear it. And part of the reason Eliphaz won't hear it it gets back to this issue of private revelation, which really takes counter arguments off the table. We've experienced this. Perhaps we've done this ourselves. When somebody says, God told me to, or I just really feel like God has led me to, or the, the really soft, subtle form of it is, you know, I really prayed about this decision. Which is both factually true, I hope, and can be a pretty uh, powerful defense mechanism against having to discuss with somebody whether or not it's a good decision. Because you're telling them, look, I, I prayed it. Did you pray about this as much as I did? Well, I prayed about it, and I got a sense of peace about it. Therefore, and again, I'm not saying don't pray about it. You should pray about it. I'm not saying the spirit cannot give you a sense of peace about your decisions. But when you tell someone that the reason they can't ask probing questions or disagree with your decision is that you prayed about it and you have a sense of peace, you're claiming this private revelation. That God has revealed something to you that he hasn't revealed to anyone else. Something to you that is, that is it is impossible for that to be wrong. And so it's unassailable. You can't even talk about it. Uh, one of the, I forget who, but one of the commentaries I read, and Joe makes the point that the, the problem with this is if, if our conscience is bound to a decision because of prayer or a sense of peace or all these things that the Spirit can use, that's good. That's how we should make decisions. But what we're doing when we say this is we're binding other people to our decision they too, if they believe in God, must agree with what I'm deciding. Ooh, that's, that's categorically different. Uh, Eliphaz theology here can't be questioned because God gave him this script. Except God didn't give him the script. It's not that the script is untrue. Again, it's that the script is irrelevant. The only thing that we should be immovable on The only thing we can ever take this attitude about are the things which are clearly, directly revealed by Scripture. And even then, we have to have some humility toward, is this the right application of it? Is this the the right situation where that truth uh, is supposed to be applied? Who's got Isaiah 8, 20? To the teaching
1: and to the testimony. They will not speak according
0: to this word. It is because they have no dawn. This is one of the goofiest things that happens in my own brain. But whenever my children ask a question at home, and I know that the answer is clearly revealed in Scripture, I imagine myself as Isaiah chapter eight saying to the testimonies, "Let's go! Let's go to the testimonies and find the answer." Right? When you have no light of dawn, you don't have the Scripture or the guidance of God's Word. You can't see clearly. But that specific question that you asked. God gave us clear light on that. He gave us clear revelation. So let's go to it and let's read it and understand it and do what he said. Derek Thomas says, every experience must pass the scrutiny of the word of God. Everything that we want to claim God's favor on or God's will toward, you better have the scriptures that clearly say it. Otherwise, you're allowed to say, I believe this is wisdom. I believe that this is consistent with the will of God. You can use a lot of language that says, I'm trying to make a godly decision, and I'm praying, and I'm seeking wise counsel, and all of that is exactly how we should make decisions. But when you say, God said, he better have said, (laughs) and the only place you'll find that is to the teachings, to the testimonies. Go to the word of God itself, and Eliphaz uh, doesn't do that. The second reason Eliphaz <clears throat> thinks that his um, advice is beyond reproach is that his theology is beyond reproach, that his theological system is perfect. And so he explains very patiently with stubborn old Job that Job has forgotten, that he is a sinful creature, and both of those words are important. He unpacks each of them theologically in those verses that we just read, that uh, that if Job will submit himself to being both a creature, not God himself, not the creator, but the creature, and sinful, imperfect, filled with, uh, with, with sin and disobedience, then he'll get it. He'll have all of this figured out. So he gives a little lecture on God's transcendence. Who's got 18 through 21? Even in his servants, he puts no trust in his angels as he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth? Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without
1: anyone regarding it. It is not tent cord plugged up, but plucked up within them. Do they not die? And that without wisdom? Hey, Joe, know your role. You're a creature.
0: You'll never be able to understand God's works. I mean, in the scheme of things, you're a piece of clay. You're a moth. You're gonna die. You don't. You don't ask these questions of God. No, your place, Job. So again, if we if we think about this and push back on it a little bit, the main point is true enough. The creature creator distinction matters. It is a top-level filter through which we have to understand ourselves and and all truth. Uh, But the application doesn't follow. God is God, and we are creatures, yes. But are we mere creatures? Are we creatures the same way a moth is? No. We're made in the image of God. We've been given faculties and reason, and God desires and engages in personal relationships with us. I don't see anywhere, it may be true, but I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it says the Lord Jesus has a personal relationship with my cat, Julius. But he does with me. He knows me and is, knows where I am and knows where I ought to be and will be conformed to the image of Christ. And he has a very personalized plan in getting me from here to there. I'm not a maw. And so it's a little bit irrelevant to bring up the you're a creature issue here. Um, Think about children. Maybe that's a good analogy here. Two different attitudes to a child asking a bunch of questions of you. One attitude is you're a child. You don't deserve any of these answers. I don't have to waste my time on this. That's the attitude Aliphaz presumes of God and of Job's questions, which is, you got no business asking this stuff. You don't deserve answers. You're a sinful creature. Shut up and know your role and get in place. But another approach to children is uh, they may not be ready for some answers. They may not be able to handle some answers. But we don't, shouldn't, brutalize them for the asking of them. We say to them, I know this is tough. It's, it, I don't expect you to be able to understand why this decision is what's best for you. But I need you to rest in the fact that I love you and I'm trying to do what's wise and what's best for you. That's the attitude God actually has toward the creatures that are made in his image. And Eliphaz says, no, stupid moth, shut up. Quit your whining, quit asking your questions. Um, God is always free to decide how to answer our questions, when to answer our questions, or not to answer our questions. And his decision is always good and just and what's best for us and most glorifying for him. But we are free to ask those questions. We're to approach him as a loving heavenly father and ask our questions now the Bible has a lot to say about the demeanor the position from which we ask those questions and exactly we need to remember that we're sinful creatures and that God does not owe us anything but that's the accusation that Eliphaz is making against Job and that's not what chapter 3 is did you read it? Job is not saying I am sinless and perfectly righteous and wiser and more just than you O God I demand that's not chapter 3 at all chapter 3 is I am broken and hurt and this is horrible (laughs) Eliphaz's second theological point is that Job has forgotten that he's a sinner and sinners always get what they deserve and they in fact and this is back to the tone deafness of this supposedly good friend who's got 5, 17, and 18 Behold,
1: blessed is the one whom God reproves Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal.
0: You know what, Job? You should actually be grateful that God is disciplining you. See, I think this is such a fabulous example, because if we took that verse out of context, out of the Job context, I mean, we could apply that that verse in a thousand positive ways, couldn't we? That verse has a lot of positive things to say about God. That's a good theological truth. Now, put it back in its context. Should he have said it? No chance. No chance he should have said this here. You're not dealing with a guy who got passed over for a promotion. His kids are dead. His stuff is gone. He is ruined. He is sitting on a pile of burning trash, scraping scabs off of his skin with broken pottery. And you want to tell him, this is a sign of how much the Lord loves you. (laughs) Have you lost your ever-loving mind? True and irrelevant (laughs) and utterly unhelpful. Everything he says is theologically true, but everything he says ignores and therefore begs the one question that should be asked, which is, did Job do anything to deserve this? The answer to that is no. But Eliphaz brings in this absolute conviction that the answer to that is yes, and we're not even going to evaluate that question. We're not even going to allow any other possibility. And so everything he said is going to be based on the absolute knowledge that this is what Job deserves. And then you end up saying insane things to your friend, like, you should actually be grateful this is happening to you. Is it because he was going to be Ground in the dust and forgotten, and now he has a sword in his mouth, but is forgiven. That's I mean, look
1: at the bright side. <laughs>
0: what? Don't just hey, what look at the bright. You're not dead yet. That's pretty much what that is. <laughs> I mean, think and, and this is so easy for us to mock, and it's good for us to mock it because it deserves mockery. And then from our mockery, we turn toward the mirror and we say. You know that time I said to a person, well, at least you dot, dot, dot. Or didn't say it out loud, because, I mean, we're pretty godly people, let's be honest. And in the back of our minds, we thought, well, maybe you'll realize soon that the Lord is teaching us. Eliphaz, that's what we are. We're Eliphaz. When we look at somebody else's suffering and trial, and our immediate connection that we hope they will have the wisdom and maturity to see is that God is doing this to correct a particular thing that they need to change or do differently. And you just read, like, go back and reread Eliphaz and think, I don't want to be him. I really don't want to be him. I don't want to be him out loud, but I also don't want to be him in my heart. I don't want to look at people suffering from that position of indifferent judgment. It's such an ungodly place to be. And you can say so many things that are true and still be in that ungodly position of indifferent judgment, which is where Eliphaz is. Uh, You know, at least God loves you enough to chastise you. What comfort that ought to be. He tells Job in verse 27, the sooner he applies this wisdom to his life, the sooner all the suffering will be over. If you just learn your lesson, things will get better. Whoa. I mean that you only say that if you believe God told you, and if you're nuts, <laughs> if you're nuts, if you think you know the future like that, uh, remember in John this same point that Eliphaz is missing, say Eliphaz didn't read the Gospel of John well enough. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: Jesus has this exact discussion in John. Do you remember the context they're in Jerusalem. And his disciples see something and they ask Jesus about it. The man born blind. Uh, Who sinned? Why is this guy blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And what do the disciples think? Those are the only two options. That this sin, this suffering is because of sin in the past. And this is a profound, lesson of the book of Job that Jesus reiterates in that that story. Jesus says, your evaluation of suffering only looks backwards. What caused this? The purpose for this must have come before. And Jesus tells them what with the man born blind? no. The purpose in this man's suffering looked forward so that I would be glorified when I healed him. I get chills. Just think about that. The suffering that we experience, some of which is discipline and chastisement from sin in the past. Absolutely. But there's this other category. Jesus himself tells us, and Job demonstrates it, that is suffering that looks forward to the way God will be glorified in some way through it, by healing from it, by relief from it, by the impact that it has on people around you. Uh, Eliphaz can't imagine, maybe in God's economy, what was supposed to happen. This is all really uh, imprecise theological language. Nobody should put this on the internet. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But imagine a world where the point of Job's suffering was to convert Eliphaz to true faith where Eliphaz was supposed to come see this and see Job's brokenness and see Job's faith and perseverance in the brokenness. And Eliphaz drops away this theological pretense and this arrogance and says, my Lord and my God, and falls down in faith. And then you'd say, why did Job suffer? Look at how the Lord used it in Eliphaz's life. That'd be a pretty easy story. It's not this story, but it's a pretty easy to imagine story. And we got the man born blind. And so we see all this other suffering. And just because we don't get to see... Forward looking, God glorifying benefit of it, we forget that that very well could be the purpose of it in the first place. And Eliphaz had absolutely no category for this. With Job, we chosen? Chosen correctly, I guess. Unclear. <laughs> so if we do this, we will help Eliphaz. Mm. <laughs> Thankfully, God doesn't give us the choice. <laughs> no, I'm not convinced that we love others quite enough. <laughs> like Eliphaz would <we're> <laughs> not So before we move on to Job's response, let's talk about Eliphaz a bit, because we haven't piled on quite enough. So let's talk about, let's evaluate his performance as friend and comforter. Uh, We'll give him credit, so let's do the positive side of the ledger for just a moment. Uh, In his favor is that Eliphaz said some nice things about Job. Anybody got anything else? He finally kind of spoke. Oh, he spoke. Yeah. Good call, Megan. Yeah. He, he could have just out. walked away. Although now that he spoke, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but yeah, he could have just walked away. Yeah. He he desired to do something. He has some theological truth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He knows some truth. In fact, none of his specific theological claims. Are wrong. It is only the relevance of them that is the issue here. Uh, all right, I think that's pretty much the end of the positives. So the negatives are everything else. This speech plays bad enough on its own. If you took this speech just in isolation, this is bad friendship. This is bad comforting. Now, take this speech and read chapter 3 before it, and uh, your head should explode. Who could do this? Who could do this to a friend? Who could be so self-righteous and confident in their own moral and theological perfection that they look at this man in this moment and say this? You hear the tormented cry of Job's soul. And in response, you give a theological treatise of irrelevant truths, you insult the guy, and your conclusion is, at least God loves you enough to discipline you. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing. Who's got, let's, let's read several of these. Who's got four, seven, and eight? Remember, who was innocent
1: ever perished? Who that was, innocent, ever perished, Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Hey, Joe! You're a sinner, and that's
0: why these bad things are happening to you. How about 5-2? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. (laughs) Hey, Joe! The Bible says you're a fool, because you got this stuff going on. How about verse 4? His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. Hey, Job, your kids who died, that's your fault. Who's got verse 8? As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I
1: commit my cause. That's a good one.
0: Job, if I were you, I would turn back to God, and then you'll stop killing your children and being such a fool filled with sin. Have these guys been waiting? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you You do wonder like friends like these right yeah, we're on top uh, he never for a moment believes job 's side of the story, and this is an important point for christian counseling and i don 't just mean that in a in a clinical counseling context, I mean for all of you in the counseling that you do with brothers and sisters in Christ listening to their uh, grief or anxiety or challenges and trying to respond in a godly way with comfort and wisdom, this is a very important point that some of you are not going to like at all. Love, what does the Bible say? Uh, it says a lot of things about love, so when I say what does the Bible say about love, you have no idea what I'm looking for. But here's what I'm looking for, what the Bible says about love that some of us really really don't like. What does love believe? All things. All <clears> things. <throat> Love believes all things. And here's the application of this in Christian counseling, is that when you are talking with someone about their sorrow, their anxiety, and their situation, you start with believing them. Until you have facts that show they are mistaken or being deceptive, you believe them. Why? Because love believes all things doesn't mean that you take some sort of radical action on the basis as if they couldn't possibly be wrong. People have all sorts of reasons to not do what I just said you have to do. All sorts of hypotheticals and extremes where people say, that's why I don't have to believe all things. And I'm telling you, you're wrong. Scripture says you have to believe all things. And Eliphaz sitting there with his friend It's not like Eliphaz needed to go to the temple and defend Job's honors against others just based on Job's account. Eliphaz was talking to Job. How does Eliphaz interact with Job? How does he give Job comfort and wisdom? He starts by believing all things until he has the facts to show that he can't. Thoughts about
1: that? That's hard, isn't it? Are the facts just how he looks, No, bad luck?
0: The facts, you know, if you found out later that Job had a hidden family and some extra kids on the side, and again, that's why I'm saying, like, what we want to run to is somebody comes and makes an accusation that they've been victimized in some way, and there are lots of responses that you can take to that accusation. One of them is, I'm going to go to the police and file charges against so-and-so, and because, well, I would want to be really sure before I did that. Okay, great. Now set that entirely aside and now have the conversation one-on-one with the person who believes and feels as though they were victimized. Why do you start from a Missourian position of I'll believe it when you show me, when you prove me, rather than starting from a position of love for your brother or sister which says it believes all things? And the answer is we're skeptical jerks because we stand in judgment over other people with our theological accuracy and believe that we will display to them exactly what they need displayed to them, no matter what God says they need displayed to them, which is love that believes all things. Uh, Derek Thomas says that Eliphaz theology is correct. The error lies in the use he made of it. He failed to uncover Job's real problem and therefore could not help him believe. Why did he fail to uncover Jeb's real problem? He didn't believe Jeb. He didn't believe Jeb. Jeb said, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And Eliphaz said, sure you did. That is not good. And I do it dozens of times a day. Of the, I get to make the quick analysis of whether something is worth believing. And treat people not on the basis of what they say and feel and experience, but on the basis of my judgment of how they should feel about what they probably experience. Uh, Along with that, as I said, Eliphaz doesn't believe suffering can be forward-looking. It can be for the glory of God and thus a blessing to someone else. So we do give high marks to Eliphaz for the fact that he spoke, for the fact that he said some nice things about Job, and in principle, For acknowledging that suffering can be caused by sin. I mean, that is a hard truth that people sometimes need to be confronted with. That our continual running away from God might be the reason we feel far from God. That our rebellion against God and the way you organize the universe might be why we're getting all of these crummy results that we wish were different. There are lots of truths there that Eliphaz has that are hard truths to present to a friend. And uh, they're true. They have their place. Sympathy doesn't ignore sin. Nothing about being sympathetic requires us to ignore sin or pretend sin isn't sin. But Eliphaz gets zero marks for listening. And if you don't listen, you can't comfort. And if you've already judged the situation beforehand without listening... You're not going to be able to comfort well, be able to comfort a truth. Questions about that, and then we'll, we'll go to Job's response, which is pretty Job-y. All right. So scholars point out that much of what we see in Job, in terms of Job the person, are the stages of grief that we're familiar with. The sort of un- the silence of chapter two, the agony, sadness of chapter three, and now you'll get the anger. Um, he's mad. His comforter really let him down. His oldest and wisest friend really failed him. Who's got six two through ten?
1: Oh, that my vexation were weighed
0: and all my calamity laid in the balance, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass? Or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope. That it would please God to crush me. That he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. So job does a good job here of obeying the uh, clear and easy, fo- easy to follow proverb of do not answer a fool according to his folly. Uh, and so if you look carefully at what Job says, how much does he interact with Eliphaz? Specific speech and accusations? No, none. He just doesn't answer the fool according to his folly. He expresses his grief and his anger that he's got terrible friends. <laughs> He, he looked to his friends for comfort. Can you imagine Job sitting on this pile of trash for weeks and weeks and months and months, and then he sees his three friends come over the horizon, and you finally feel like there is some help here. My friends have come to comfort me. I am not alone. The Lord has provided this small blessing for me. And he looked to his friends to help him. And he gets seven days of silence. (laughs) And so then he lets loose this poem of Job 3, and his heart is just broken, and he wishes he'd never been born, and this is so awful. And he looks to his oldest friend, Eliphaz, and Eliphaz begins to speak. And here it comes. Here comes the comforting balm of a friend's wise and godly words, except that he gets a theological lecture, a whole bunch of insults, and blame for killing his children. And yeah, so you get Job 6 and 7. You <laughs> get an unhappy Job responding to his children. He doesn't hardly respond to Eliphaz at all. He wishes for death. And what's interesting here is before he wished for death because of his suffering, because of the purposeless purposelessness of his life. Did you notice why he wished for death here? It's so that he won't blaspheme God listening to Eliphaz's lecture puts him at great risk of finally cursing God and dying. (laughs) It's not all the suffering that has the best chance of making Job curse God. It's listening to that nonsense from Eliphaz that puts him at risk. That's, he would be, uh, he'd be mad if he knew I told you this story, but, but I don't care. He deserves the honor. My, the professor that I worked for so much in seminary, Doug Kelly, um, We would have prayer times together in his office and conversations about life and ministry and things. And one of the things that he said consistently that always stuck in my mind, we were talking about some of the older theologians and how a lot of them tend to go crazy. (laughs) Like, I think you spend too much time trying to approach the mind of God and it breaks your brain eventually. And his genuine prayer said completely straight faced was that the Lord would not allow him to live long enough to blaspheme God or harm his church. And that's what Job is, is in the mind here, is Job is so faithful to God that his concern in this moment is, Lord, if you don't kill me, there's a chance I'm going to say something we both regret. <laughs> and that's, it's sad and tragic and funny. and just, There's a lot of honor in that. There's a lot of godliness in that. Uh, so Job basically says that talking to all you people is completely worthless. And uh, who's got 11 to 23?
1: What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift? or from where from your wealth offer a bribe for me or deliver me from the adversary's hand or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless.
0: So Eliphaz basically told Job, look, uh, you're dealing with some minor discipline. So just be patient with the discipline and repent of the sin and things will get better. And Job begins there with, I don't have any strength left. I have nothing left. And he certainly didn't get any renewed strength from the words of his friend. <laughs> so that didn't really help. Chapter 7 will be the same thing. We're not going to read it, but he's going to talk about the misery of life, the futility of his life. Um, he actually has a really ironic this is chapter 7 if you look at I think 17 through 21 is a really ironic take on Psalm 8. Remember in Psalm 8 when the David declares what is man that you are mindful of him? And the right, and Job says, Yeah, uh, what is what am I when God is mindful of me? What happened to Job when God was mindful of Job? You remember that? Have you considered my servant Job? God was mindful of Job, and look what happened. And so there's this dramatic irony there. It's Tevyah's prayer in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, where he says, Lord, we know you're your chosen people. Maybe you could choose somebody else for a while. <laughs> uh, But here's the problem with Job in 6 and 7. He's thinking too small. Even when Job makes the biggest comparisons he can make, chapter 7, verse 12, he talks about the monsters of the deep and how the Lord has to hold them back. Job thinks of the biggest circumstances he can imagine, which is God and these these sea monsters. um, He doesn't know the broader story. And he doesn't believe there could be a broader story And his stupid friends, who had the opportunity to give him a vision of a broader and bigger story, don't. They point him back to the small story, you and your sin. And so we, as the readers, are supposed to say, oh, Job, if only you knew, if only you knew that your horrific circumstances and your faithfulness to God in these circumstances are winning a cosmic battle for the honor of God. There's a cosmic battle happening where Satan said, no one loves you just because you're you. And you are God's answer to that. Derek Thomas said, Satan has challenged God's order. If the redemptive power of God could not preserve Job in the fear of God, then not only Job, but the whole world is lost to satanic chaos. If Satan's right, none of us is secure. None of us can persevere in faith, suffering or not. If Satan is right, that God doesn't have the strength to persevere his people in faith and love, we're host. We're all host. And Job, look small, and for the person sitting on the pile of burning garbage, scraping sores off of themselves, they're going to look small, you guys. That's what we do. When our suffering is that bad, we can't look past our suffering particularly well on our own. It hurts too badly. And if you don't believe that, if you think that in all of that suffering you have the ability in the moment to look past it, then you've never really suffered. And God be praised for that. But there is some suffering that people can go through that you cannot God does not ask them sitting there in that moment to see past it. Job doesn't sin here in this speech. I don't, I don't believe so at all. Uh, there's no indication from God or from the narrator that he sends here and if he did, that would be a big deal in Job. Uh, you don't want to make too big an argument from silence except that it's one of the main points of this book and so God would have said something about it if Job does something sinful here. Job is seeing This horrible situation, he can't see the big picture, his friends come and reinforce the small picture, which is wrong, and he gets angry at what his friends say. We'll talk about anger next week, we'll start there. Anger's not the problem, but let's close with this. Who else went through a similar thing in the Bible, major character, and had an equally strong emotional reaction, but it wasn't anger? Who else decided to look at the tactical events of the world and try to make sense of all of them to his own satisfaction? Solomon. He didn't get angry about it. He got this kind of sad, bitter indifference. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But it was the same thing, right? He said, I see the righteous man, and he dies. And I see the sinful man, and he dies. And here's what I conclude from that. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. And godly friends were supposed to come to Job and offer comfort through godly wisdom. And they offered irrelevant truth,
1: which does nothing. In fact, it's counterproductive.